I'd like to speak to you about Jesus calls His first disciples. Jesus calls His first disciples. This is um, a very heavy message. As a matter of fact, there's going to be some um, very, very strong verses I'm going to be referring to. And uh, I want to let each and every one of you know if you think there's a finger pointed to you, there's four more pointed here. I'm broken, I've broke this up in, in two parts. The reason why, when we start talking about discipleship, there is much, much to cover. And this is timely. I really do believe. Just as Brother Ben is reading through the book of Joshua, that is God's providence. That's God's time, time for us as Redeeming Grace Church. Here we are talking about discipleship. Jesus calls His first disciples. And they were literally the, the disciples of John the Baptist. We're going to look into this. We're going to cover a part of it, and then, Lord willing, we're going to cover the rest of it next Lord's Day. So please turn with me to the Gospel of John as we continue our journey through this wonderful fourth Gospel. Beginning with verse 35, we will read to verse 42. Verse 35 to verse 42. Hear the word of the living God. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked He said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard Him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to Him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Please bow with me and pray as we pray and seek the Lord's face as we hear His Word, what God has to say to each and every one of us. Our Father... And our gracious Lord, my prayer is that you would help us. Help us, Lord, for you are our help and our refuge in a time of trouble. But you are our help and refuge anytime. Help us in our utter weakness, Lord, because I'm weak. I'm dependent upon you and your 
your Holy Spirit to help me to deliver this message to your people. Lord, I pray that you come and grant us grace. Help us in our time of need by your blessed Holy Spirit who is the true teacher, the spirit of truth. Help us, Lord, I pray, to perceive, to understand, just not with our heads, Lord, but with our heart, with our hearts. And Lord, we need Your Holy Spirit that we would understand this holy Word You have given us and what it truly means to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus. To be His disciple to the very end of our journey until You call us home. And we ask this for Your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Here before us we, we have now come to the third day. The third day in sequence to the text. Now as we looked at the first day of sequence of John's testimony concerning who Jesus is, verse 19 to verse 28, John is basically saying, He's in your midst. He's here. The second day, and each of these days he is speaking to a different group of people. We'll see that. The second day, verse 29 to verse 34, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, he bears public witness of who Jesus is. Who is He? He speaks of His person and His work in that text. Behold the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Basically, He covered it in one sentence. That was the purpose why John the Baptist existed. That was His call. To say that one sentence. To shout that one sentence. So He speaks of His person and His work. All in that one sentence. Verse 35 again, the next day, this is the third day, the third group of people, the group of people is John's disciples. John's disciples. John the Baptist's disciples. And um, he draws full attention to Jesus Christ. Now think of that. He's drawing full attention to Christ. And that's why he says once again, behold the Lamb of God as Jesus is walking by. He speaks of full attention to His person. And I like to think of it this way. His, his message was really short. It wasn't lengthy. It was concise. It was short. It was simple. And the message was all about the Savior, Jesus Christ. No, he wasn't about himself. It was all about Jesus. Puritan William Grenaud, I know Brother Ben loves Grenaud, great Puritan, said this about true discipleship. And what it means to follow Jesus. Fasten your seatbelts, folks. These Puritans have got something to say, and it's all biblical. It's based upon the Scripture. This is what Grenal says, quote, Why should you fear to be stripped of which you have resigned already to Christ? Why should you fear it is the first lesson you learn. That's what the disciple is, right? The first lesson you learn 
as a Christian. To deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow your master so that the enemy comes too late. You have no life to lose because you have already given it already to Christ. Nor can man take away that with, uh, without God's leave, permission, basically. All you have is insured. It's insured. And though God has not promised you immunity from suffering, it's the opposite of what lots preach today, isn't it? God has not promised you immunity from suffering in this kind, yet He has undertaken to bear the loss. Indeed, to pay you a hundredfold. What an encouragement. A hundredfold. And you will not stay for it till another world. He goes on to say, Jesus Christ is but little known of those who consider themselves His friends. For we see them seeking Him, their own comfort, and not His bitter sorrows. End quote. That almost sounds foreign to us because a lot of what's preached today is opposite of that. But what that, what that great Puritan is, I should say not really great, he's preaching of a great Savior, but a weak Puritan. He's preaching something that is biblical. We don't understand the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Therefore, we don't have the power of the resurrection. But we can. We can. Let me say this on a personal note here and comment on what William Grinnell has mentioned. Sadly and tragically, what has been adopted in most of the circles of evangelical churches today, especially today, by the nominal name only, quote-unquote, Christians, is this. It says being a Christian is about being good, moral, doing what is right, going to church, um, even reading the Bible is enough. And that being a Christian means that God will bless you, God will give you long life, health, wealth, and prosperity, your best life now, basically, and that you shouldn't have to suffer. God owes you something. It's sad to say that um, I've, I've spoken to an elderly man that he's, he's got tremendous work ethics. I don't even think he darkens the door of a church. But he really thinks God owes him. He even tells me that, uh, this is on my milk route, he even tells me that I'm praying that God gives me 125 years. I'm claiming it. I'm claiming 125 years. I said, do you know what the Bible says about that? Read Psalm 90. If you lived 70 or 80 years, God's blessed you. I said, that's the word of God. And then he turned around and responded, listen to the obstinance. He said, but I'm claiming Psalm 91. I just, um, see you later. He's not going to listen. It, it's, it, it's sad, folks. But the sad part about all this is that what I just listed briefly, briefly, there's much, much more I could speak about on that, is many people do not know what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. What does the Bible say? 
What does the Bible say about being a disciple? And we're going to hit, we, on the application, we're going to see that. But what does it mean to follow Jesus? Actually, John MacArthur's classic book that he wrote back in the late 80s was actually about what it means to follow Jesus, the gospel according to Jesus. And he dealt with repentance, the lordship of Christ, submission to his lordship, justification by faith was later on added because he got a lot of heat about that. But I'm telling you folks, when that book was released, it was hot because he even knew that it attacked Dallas Theological Seminary, the evangelical conservatives. But what, what they stress in most Southern Baptist circles and in other churches as well is just Jesus as Savior, but they leave out His Lordship. But if you read the Scriptures very closely and carefully, you cannot have Christ as Savior unless you have Him as Lord. You, in other words, you can't divide Christ. He is Lord and Savior. So, in other words, when people want Him just as Savior, they just want a ticket to heaven. Their life here like, doesn't matter. In other words, I can live. It's antinomianism, basically. Licentiousness. I can live whatever, any way I want, so I got my ticket to salvation, so my sanctification really doesn't matter. But it does matter, doesn't it? Because if there's not, and Washer said this, he says, actually, a gospel that does not preach true sanctification, true holiness, tied in with justification by faith alone, he says, a perverted gospel. So, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the cost of discipleship. Beloved, when someone comes to genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ, as I love the way Gerdal said it, they are stripped. They are stripped from everything that they thought is valuable. And the cost of discipleship, and this is heavy, I'm preaching to myself because, folks, I need to be reminded of this just as well. The cost of following Jesus is high. Amen. It is absolutely everything. Not some things. Everything. But when you have Jesus, you got everything. You have God all in one. And isn't He enough? He's more than enough. How does this look like in a flesh when one comes to follow Jesus? Well, if you turn with me very quickly, and this is off the... The offset of the first, here what we're talking about, if you notice when Jesus began that great sermon on the mount, how did he begin? He Notice in verse 1 of chapter 5, it's seeing the multitudes. He went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, isn't it amazing? He's seated. Why is he seated? He wasn't standing he was seated. His disciples came to him. The disciples come. You know what Jesus is doing here? Even though it was a sermon, it was a sermon to his disciples. So what's the master doing? He's teaching his disciples. He's the master. He's the rabbi. Then he opened his mouth and taught them saying, and how does he begin it? Like, a, like the prophet as he is, and, was, and, and, and as he is now, the great prophet, priest, and king. But he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the Master teaching the disciples. This is the opening of that great sermon. Sermon. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Saw that yesterday. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And he goes on, then he talks about salt. You are salt and light, as I mentioned earlier. He goes on all the way through that great sermon. But what is he doing? He's teaching his disciples. And the reason I mention that is that is the way our Lord taught. Now the Apostle Paul understood this. That being a disciple of Jesus Christ, a slave of Jesus Christ, a, a doulos of Christ, meant that it cost him everything. Everything. Paul counted that cost, folks. Paul was incredible. He was a very weak man, but very strong in Christ. The man is absolutely incredible. He was a terrorist, as you well know, and then God stopped him in his tracks on the road to Damascus, blinded him for three days, and then his first response, Lord, who are you? And Jesus responds, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Whom you persecute. Whom you persecute. Paul became a tremendous apostle to the Gentiles. This is what he said in Philippians 3, 7-11. Notice the word count. Count. He counted the cost. Listen to this. But what things were gained to me, speaking of his past life, very religious, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss. Not some things. All things. All things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. My Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count, there it is again, Count them as rubbish. You know what that means? Garbage. It was all garbage. It was all waste. In the original Greek, it actually means dung, manure. It stinks. Basically, he's saying that all my religion stinks before God. It's all, it's dung. And then he says this. This was his goal, folks. And this should be our goal as well. That I may win Christ, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, through the righteousness which is from God by faith. Verse 10 that I may know Him. There it is. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings. Fellowship of His sufferings? Yes. Being conformed to His death. 
If by any means that I may attain, that means to arrive, to the resurrection from the dead. You know, beloved, this means that everything one valued in love compared to Jesus Christ does not even come close. Does not even come close. Sadly, many want to want the, the title of Christian without a cross. But I'm telling you, according to what this book preaches and what it speaks of and what Jesus says, there's a cross to bear. There is a cross. Discipleship demands our life, our soul, and our all, beloved. Because discipleship is a call to follow Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was executed, a German theologian from the Nazis, stood up stood up to um, Hitler. And this is what he said. He wrote a great book about discipleship, what it means to follow Christ. He said, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. It's so true. Well, our text today simply shows us what happens when one follows Jesus. When they hear Him call and what we should do as believers. Now again, I'm going to cover this in two sermons, so there's much to be said here. I've got three points. We're going to look at one and a half today, Lord willing, but we will divide this up, right? Because there is much to speak of. The first thing I'd like for us to look at in verse 35 to 37 is Jesus is followed by the disciples. Jesus is followed by the disciples. Second, in verse 38 to 40, Jesus speaks to the disciples. And then third, Jesus is shared by the disciples in verse 41 and 42. So we look at Jesus is followed by the disciples, Jesus speaks to the disciples, and Jesus is shared by a disciple. And that will be, Lord willing, next week. Let's look at 35 to 37. Jesus is followed by the disciples. Jesus is followed by the disciples. Look at verse 35. We've already looked part of it again the next day. We've noted already that this third day is to a third group of people. John the Baptist and his own disciples, his own very own disciples. John stood with the two disciples right here. Here's John standing. John's focus is completely on Jesus Christ. Totally. And then he says, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, verse 36, and looking at Jesus, he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. These two disciples, as you look at verse 40, is we, one is named, is Andrew, that is Simon Peter's brother, Andrew. And the other is actually anonymous. And if he's anonymous, more than likely... It is John the Apostle. Because he keeps because of his humility, folks, he does not name himself. You see this time and time again, all the way through the book of John, the disciple in whom Jesus loved. The disciple in whom Jesus loved. Time and time again. So it's more than likely Andrew and John the Apostle. So we, we look at these two disciples here. The writer of the Gospel, of course, so, in John the Baptist's ministry, he had made disciples. Let's think about this for a minute, okay? 
Uh, John the Baptist had two disciples, Andrew and John, who would be later on John the Apostle. I'm sure if you think of it, and I like to use a little sanctification, sanctified imagination if you don't mind, that John the Baptist invested many, many years in these men. And I really do believe in the backside of the wilderness somewhere, he was one-on-one with them, teaching them. And I'm sure he shared with them many things. We don't have it in Revelation, what he shared. So we don't know exactly what he said, but you can actually, we know some way or another that he discipled these men. I'm sure he spoke of the Messiah that was to come. The disciple is one who is a lifetime learner. He's a student who adheres to the rabbi, the master teacher. The general use, by the way, of the word disciple is used 260 instances in the New Testament. 260 times. About 230 times it appears in the four Gospels. Think of that. Out of 260 times, 230 times is in the Gospels. The word generally refers to the disciples of Jesus, but there are also disciples of Moses in John 9, 28. There are also disciples of the Pharisees in Matthew twenty two sixteen, 16, Mark 2, 18. There's also, as we see here in the text, the disciples of John the Baptist in Mark 2, 18 and Luke 11, 1. And perhaps Paul in Acts 9.25. So here in our text, we see Andrew and John. Andrew and John. And we're going to be focusing on these two here today, but mainly the cost of discipleship. And then, Lord willing, we're going to look at um, next Lord's Day, Philip and Nathaniel. Philip and Nathaniel. So today is Andrew and John, and see how that goes. But verse 37, the two disciples in verse 37 heard him speak, heard who speak? John the Baptist, and they followed Jesus. The word they heard him speak was, Behold the Lamb of God. It's incredible. Again, day one, John the Baptist speaks to the priests and the Levites. He's here. Day two, John the Baptist speaks to the people. Behold, in the public, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here, his two disciples, Andrew and John, he says... Behold the Lamb of God. And he's basically saying, follow Him. There He is. Follow Him. He is God's Lamb. So in essence, what is he saying? He said, I'd like to put it in a roundabout way in in our terminology today. What, What are you doing around hanging around me? Go and follow Jesus. He's the Master. He's the Lamb of God. Follow Him. And that really tells us a lot about John the Baptist, doesn't it? It tells us about his humility. His humility and his purpose. That should probe our hearts and minds a little. What is your purpose? And are we truly humble about it? Well, I think we can have the purpose right, but we better have the attitude right as well. We better be humble about it, and we need God's help in that, don't we? Because our remaining sin 
is constantly battling against us and our flesh wants to rise up and we think we're somehow something when we're nothing. Even when we think we're nothing, we think we're something. <laughs> so, what are you saying, Pastor? In other words, when we think we're humble, we're not humble, right? Uh, it's such a subtle thing to us. But I really do believe John the Baptist had such a true humility here because he's the one that basically said, I must decrease, he must increase. He really meant every bit of that. So, think of it. All these unknown years uh, about John the Baptist is invested in Andrew and John. He invested all those years. We don't know exactly how many years. We don't know by the revelation. It's, it's basically not given to us again. When Andrew and John, how they met John the Baptist, but we know that they came along and I'm sure there were many years there. So here's Andrew and John, one-on-one, I believe. And I want you to think of it. We come to this text and all of that pouring of his life because of that sacrifice in which John the Baptist gives to Andrew and John comes to this great climax right here. Jesus comes out of obscurity, out wherever He was. We don't know. But He appears. He's here. He's the Lamb of God. And John basically says, follow Him. That's what he's saying. John the Baptist is fulfilling his purpose. That was his goal. That was his focus. That was his joy. He said it. He must increased. I must decrease. Now, I do want to mention this to be clear on this when Andrew and John followed Jesus. Although the verb follow usually means to follow as a disciple. In the writing of the apostle, you can see this verse 43 in John 8:12 and John 12:26 and John 21:19, John 20 and sorry, 20, verse 20 and verse 21, all the way through the book of John, you see this in a neutral sense. It, it, this is exactly it, 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 the following could be meaning two two meanings here. There's a neutral sense, and the following here does not necessarily mean that they became permanent disciples at this moment. Okay. Because a lot of times we think, oh, right here, this is when they became permanent disciples. The implication may be that they went after Jesus. And I really believe that's what the meaning of the text is. They went after Jesus, after John the Baptist says, there He is, follow Him. In other words, they wanted to examine Jesus a little bit closer. Do you see the difference? They wanted to come closer to Christ. Here is the first time that Jesus is on the scene. John the Baptist says, follow Him. Actually, in John MacArthur's commentary, he notes this, quote, This event constituted a preliminary exposure of John the Baptist's disciples to Jesus. End quote. It constituted a preliminary exposure. So really the full dedication, if you could say, of their lives to Jesus at, 
at this time as true, as, as true disciples and the apostles came when Jesus Himself called them to a permanent service, a permanent following after these events here in our text. Well, can you point that out? Yes, go to Matthew chapter 4. Let's look at this just very quickly. Matthew chapter 4. And, and you see, this is the permanence. This, this is the time. What's the difference? If you notice, John the Baptist basically says, you go follow Him. Here, Jesus calls them to follow Him. This is a permanence. Look at verse 18. Four fishermen called His disciples, verse 18, and Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee saw two brothers. Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. That was their trade. They were blue-collar workers. They were rough, hardy fishermen. Just common men like you and me. And then He said to them, Follow Me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed Him. So you see the call. Jesus calls them to a permanent service. And then it says in verse 21, Going on from there, He saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed Him. Wow. <laughs> They were serious because the Master called them. But if you go back to our text, here, in a sense, the John the Baptist basically points them to Christ, says, there He is. You go follow Him. So it was in a sense they went after Jesus because they had such an interest in who He was as the Messiah, the Lamb of God. They wanted to know more about Him. So at this point in our text, John, in John chapter 1, in verse 35 to 37, the narrative here, John the Baptist fades away. His time has ended. It's a season. The star has faded away and the great Christ comes on the scene. The Messiah, the Lamb of God. He says, follow Him. And John the Baptist throws full attention to Jesus Christ. So Jesus is followed by these two disciples, Andrew and John. To have a closer look. Now my second point is this. The next point is found in verse 38 to 40. And this is as far as we're going to get in, in the content of what we're looking at. Then we're going to look at some application. So Jesus speaks to the disciples. Jesus speaks to the disciples. In verse 38 to 40. The text tells us, Then Jesus turned... Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, the very first thing He does out comes from His wonderful words is the words, what do you seek? There's a question. What do you seek? And they responded and gave an answer back with a question. They said to Him, Rabbi... Which is to say, trans, which translated teacher, where are you staying? Where are you staying? 
I really believe Jesus was very pleased with the way they answered that with a question. To His question. The Master, Teacher, Savior is always interested in those who follow Him. Isn't He? And aren't you glad? We should take joy in that, folks. Verse 38, Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, What do you seek? What a question. What a question. What do you seek? Ask yourself this question. What do you seek in following Jesus? What do you seek? Here we see the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. The master teacher gives Andrew and John the apostle a question. And I'll be honest with you, it's very probing. It's very probing because the question goes to our innermost being, our motives. What, what, what do you seek? In other words, what, what's your motive of following Christ? What, what is, what's your motivation or what do you want from Jesus? What, what, what are you looking for in Jesus? Ask people these questions. In the church today, what, what, what are you seeking after Jesus? Are you just seeking after Him, the blessings? Or do you love Him for who He is? Or are you really interested in who He is as the beautiful person as He is? That's what the disciple loves about the Master. He loves the teacher. He loves the rabbi. He loves the great one. That's actually what it means. What do you seek? What are you looking for? Well, Jesus knew the answer to that question, didn't He? He already knew it. He, because he, knew, he knows our hearts. He knew their hearts. But He wanted them to express their desires in words. And the Lord desires the same out of us. A lot of times I'm thinking, you know, you've, you've heard people, I've heard some people even say this, why pray? Well, the question would be, is why not pray? Um... God already knows your hearts, but God commands us to pray, right? But isn't prayer the breath of a newborn baby that cries out? That's the birth within the kingdom. We cry out to God because we love God and we know that God, and I was telling the children on the way here today, really, to follow Jesus is about loving Jesus, about loving God, and we cry out to Him because we're dependent on Him as little children. As we were singing earlier, blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, hear or hear us when we pray. So the answer really is wonderful. Jesus, even though Jesus knows all things, He wanted them to express their own desires in, in words. And they said to Him, Rabbi, which is to say, which it says it in the Scriptures, which Say, when translated, teacher. And they ask a question. Where are you staying? Where are you staying? Where are you staying? What does that mean? <laughs> Andrew and John basically is desiring to know their Lord more. In other words, they are wanting to be with Him. They are wanting to get closer to Him. They want to know Him more and more. Don't you want to know Him more and more? Where are you staying? We want to know you more. He addresses him as rabbi, which is respect for the Lord. Teacher. And in the original Hebrew, it literally means great one. You're the great one. You're the rabbi. Where are you staying? In other words, another translation puts it, where are you dwelling at? 
Where are you dwelling? They wanted time with the Lord. They desired conversation with the Lord. And they have questions. They have inquiries. They just wanted to be with Him in sweet communion and sweet fellowship. Isn't that your inmost desire is just to be with Jesus? Wow. You know, when we live in this evil world and especially the depravity we saw yesterday, I just went home and I just... When I retired to my study, I was just so grieved at all this that was, I was seeing. I said, I just want to fall at the feet of Jesus and just sit there at His feet and just gaze upon my Lord. And I grieve for those people, of course, that's in blindness and darkness, but it's gotten really bad, folks. But this is something that God has just done. He's given them over to a mind that is insane because of the utter rejection a nation, I'm telling you, in Psalm 9, it says, all nations, all nations that forget God will be turned into hell. I mean, Sheo to the grave. In other words, God will give them up. And this is a nation, folks, that has forgotten God. That's the problem. Didn't Paul say it? There's no fear of God before their eyes. Look around. The mocking. They mock God. But get this. You know this. God will not be mocked. And we know that there's a judgment. There's a storm coming on the horizon. And now it's time for the church to be the church. Well, back to our text. You remember, we see, we see that they were made permanent disciples. And that is, they are at the beginning here just desiring to be with Him. Later on, they become permanent disciples when Jesus calls them. And now notice with me in verse 39. He said to them, and He answers them after He asks them, where, where are you dwelling? Where are you dwelling? Come and see. Don't you love that answer? Jesus invites them. Come and see. So they came and saw where he was staying, the text says, and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. So the Lord gives them invitation. And by the way, have you, did you notice the invitation was immediate? There was no hesitation on the Lord. He gave immediate invitation. It almost reminds you of Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 30, don't you, through 30. Don't you love that? When our Lord tells the people, you come to me. You come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden. He's talking about those under the weightiness of the law. The law was a heavy taskmaster. And he says, you come to me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest. Soul rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. There it is. There it is. What does it mean to be a disciple? To learn from Jesus. To learn. Folks, we never stop learning. I've been serving the Lord, and I'm not bragging about this, but by His grace, since 1984, I would say that's a few decades, and I still have much to learn. I feel like I have not even scratched the surface because the more I come to see who Jesus is, the more I realize I don't what I don't know. 
We are lifetime learners of the Lord. And Jesus said, learn from me, learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. You will find rest. That's a promise. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Aren't you, aren't you thankful for that? Well, let me give some application in closing here. I, I really believe a good question for us today is learners and disciples of Jesus Christ, do we really know what it means to follow Jesus? Well, ask yourself that question. Do I, do I personally, I'm asking myself this question right now, do I really down deep in my innermost being really know what it means? To be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to carry this on next week. There's much, the Bible says much in the Gospels about what it means to be a disciple. It costs much, folks. But let me give you a few things to start off with here. How does this look like from the Word of God? First of all, number one. This is number one, folks. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ, one must, number one, deny himself. One must take up his cross and follow Jesus. That means I deny myself, I die to myself. I I take up the cross. That means obedience to his commands. And then basically, next, one must lose their lives for His sake and the Gospel's sake. Next, one must be unashamed of, the, of Jesus Christ and His words. And so being a disciple of Jesus Christ demands our life, our soul, our all, as Isaac Watts says, and not a casual belief that shows no proof of how we live. Chapter and verse, look at Mark. Chapter 8. Jesus says it Himself. Chapter 8, this is discipleship. Mark chapter 8, look at verse 34 to 38. This is tremendous. Verse 34 to 38. Let me... um. Let me start with 33. Then he came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked. Here's here's the master asking another question. What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? He already knew the answer, right? (laughs) Listen to this. But they kept silent. Conviction set in already. For on the road, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Don't you love the Lord? Next text, verse 35, And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, Can you Think of this. This is what the Master does. He sits down. He's patient with them. He doesn't scold them with being judgmental. He's a patient teacher. He sits down with them. He calls them to Himself. And He said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all 
serve it of all. And then as the Lord does, He always, not he, he does show and tell. And I think that's the most effective way to be a, a teacher is show and tell. He tells them that, then He took a little child. Folks, do you know the impact of that? Do you realize here they are disputing among themselves who's going to be first in the kingdom and Jesus is patient. He, he sits down with them and He calls them to Himself and then He brings a child. This would be like Him taking little Ethan. Well, use Ethan as an example. Is that okay, Ethan? And Jesus is seated and He, and he takes that little child and He sits the child before them. How convicting is this? I would want to find a hole and bury myself. He took a little child and he set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken his arms, in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but Him who sent me. In other words, when you honor me, you receive me, you honor the Father. Because He said, I and the Father are one, right? I don't know about you. I'm sure them disciples were very, very humbled after that, folks. If you'd been in that mist, and could you imagine along the road being the disciple of Jesus, and then you start talking with your buddy over here, the other fellow disciple? You know, I'm sure Peter and Andrew had some <laughs> talks over brothers. And here they are. Oh, when the kingdom, who's going to be first? Who's going to be the great one? The greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus already knew this. He knew this. He's patient with them. He sits down with them. Then he puts a child right in front of them as an illustration. Wow. What a teacher. Well, self-denial... Powerful. Wow. Second, the second um, application would be to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, one must abide, continue in His Word. Abiding, continuing in His Word means to obey Him. It means that knowing the truth of His Word sets us free to obey. And there are many who profess faith but live disobediently, right? That's not abiding. To obey means to obey the truth and know the truth. But it's more than just knowing, it's obeying. Because we can have it in our heads and not in our hearts. So we better make sure if we are a disciple of Jesus Christ, we are obeying our Master. If we love our Lord, we obey Him. That's what Jesus taught. So one must know the truth and knowing the truth intimately, not just intellectually, but intimately, should set them free. Heart knowledge, folks, is far valuable and surpasses head knowledge. Even though, like R.C. Sproul says, to get to the heart, it's got to go. It's got to travel through the mind, right? So the Bible says, "Renew your mind." So there's, we got to love the Lord our God with all of our mind, our heart, and our strength. But the heart is what God is after. Our mind's like a computer. It has to be reprogrammed, right? 
But the heart is where God wants to transform us. Uh, I would say John chapter 8, verse 31-32, for this, what I just mentioned, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who believed in Him, if you abide, that means continue in My Word, then you are truly My disciples. Did you hear what He said? You must abide in My Word. You must abide, continue in My Word. That's what the word abide means. You continue. And you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. To follow up with that, the third application would be to bear fruit of our faith in Jesus Christ. That would go to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And bearing fruit means that you, your faith can be evidenced by our lives. It must be evidenced by our lives. In other words, the fruit. It must be good fruit. A disciple of Jesus Christ knows that apart from Him they could do nothing, right? A true follower of Jesus Christ is one that cannot find life outside of Christ because Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Listen to the Word of God. John 15, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. It's that abiding in Jesus. So if anyone does not abide in me, he says, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so that you will be my disciples. There it is. The fourth application would be if we're going to love our Lord, we've got to love our fellow believers. Amen? That love is expressed in many ways. It's prioritized in fellowship with God's people. That's why we're here today. We love one another, but we're ultimately here because of our Lord. We love our Lord because we love the church. We love the church because we love the Lord. And loving one another is given by Jesus. He is speaking of believers, loving one another. This idea that one can do this without the church, the body of Christ may have to question their love for God. Now, this is exactly what it says in 1 John chapter 3. Go with me to 1 John chapter 3. And I'm almost finished. 1 John chapter 3. This Read the book of 1 John. It's actually written to encourage God's people of assurance of salvation. If you look at it as its whole. But 1 John is really, really powerful. Uh, chapter 3. Look at verse 16. By this we know love, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
But whoever has this world's goods sees his brother in need, shuts up his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in him? Listen to that question. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. By this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before God. And if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments. There it is. And do those things which are pleasing in His sight. And this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. He's, he's basically repeating what the Lord has commanded. Now He who abides, I'm sorry, He who keeps His commandments abides in Him. And He in Him. And by this we know that we that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. There it is. By keeping His commandments. Keeping His commandments. He abides in us. And He in Him. Obedience is huge, isn't it? It's huge. I want to close with one more text. Luke chapter 10. I know we're all busy. We have a busy life. And you know there's nothing wrong in serving. As a matter of fact, we should serve. We should be Martha's. We should serve our Lord. But look at the lesson that Jesus gives here. It's a very familiar text, isn't it? In chapter 10 of Luke. Verse 38 to 42, notice what the text says. Now it happened as they went and he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. See, she's so hospitable. She welcomes Jesus into the house and she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Mary, you can see these sisters were opposite. Mary is, uh, she's really got the gift of serving. She's hospitable. She's wanting to serve, please the Lord here. Mary is more quiet. And yet, she sits at the feet of Jesus and heard His Word quietly. But Martha, verse 40, but Martha was distracted. Sometimes serving too much can be distracting. Distracted with much serving. We need to be careful of this, folks. Let us not be taken up to too much serving because it distracts us from knowing Jesus. And notice what the text says. And she approached him and said, <laughs> she's so bold, isn't she? Lord, do you... Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? In other words, what she's saying in our terms, she's in there at your feet doing nothing, thinking that probably, and I'm doing all the work in the kitchen. 
I'm doing all the serving. I am constantly doing this to please you. This is basically what she's saying. <laughs> Lord, do you not care about this? That I'm doing all the work. I, my, that my sister has left me to serve alone. In other words, she's not helping me. Therefore, tell her to help me. <laughs> she tells Jesus, therefore, you tell her to help me. Come help me. Jesus gives a loving, loving rebuke. And it is a rebuke, but it's so loving. I'm sure it was so convicting. And <laughs> we don't know exactly what happens afterwards. But notice in verse 41, and Jesus answered and said to her, and you can almost hear our Lord say, he just didn't say Martha once. He says it twice. He says, Martha, Martha. I almost hear him saying, David, David. <laughs> you are worried and troubled about many things. You know what Jesus is doing? He's helping her in a loving way to help her prioritize. To seek what is best. Not second best, but best. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. Verse 42 is the point. That's the punchline. But one thing. Listen to our Lord, folks. Don't never miss this. And I'm preaching to myself here. One thing is needed. Just one thing. You know, David said that. One thing I desire. One thing I desire. It's the beauty of the Lord, right? <laughs> Paul says one thing. One thing is to know Jesus Christ. One thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Jesus is basically saying in a loving way, Martha, your priorities are out of line. And He's helping her in a loving way as a master, as a Savior, as Lord, as friend, as teacher, to line them up. And that's what we need to do. We need to line up our priorities. To prioritize our time with Jesus. Ch Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He says, I may sometimes run with Martha to do what Christ needs of me. But I think I should more frequently sit with Mary to receive from Christ what I need from Him. Can I get an amen? <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you folks, I need to hear this because my life right now, at the phase that I'm in, I am so busy. And I think, what is the most important thing the Lord has me, desires of me? He desires to sup with me, to have communion with me. That, and I must come and choose the best. And even though we're all busy, we have busy lives. Mothers, I know you're busy. Wives, you're busy. Fathers, husbands, all of us in this little room is busy. But we could get too busy, folks. Don't forget Jesus. Make Him the first priority. When you get up, seek His face. Open the Bible or hear the Bible. Make every way you can to know Jesus Christ more and more that you may know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings.
We need to know Him. Because folks, everything that we are, your ministry, my ministry, our service, whatever it may be, it all flows out from knowing Jesus. Everything. All that's going to matter when we hit eternity is knowing Jesus. It's not those that are seen. It's, it's not the ministers that's going to be I tell you, the one God's going to recognize, those that were not seen and unknown that were prayer warriors. May we be like that, folks. May we be that desire the best. One thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. It will not be taken away from us as well if we seek our Lord and place Him as first in our life. Let's pray. Our Father and our gracious Lord, Lord, this this message is for us at Redeeming Grace Church, but Lord, I preach to myself here because I I need to be reminded that the most important thing in my life is that one thing, that one thing, that good part, is to know You and sit at Your feet sit at Your feet, to draw nearer to Your bleeding side, to kiss Your feet. As Your Word says, kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Lest you be angry. Lest you be angry. We perish in the way. For Your wrath may soon be kindled. Lord, how blessed are all those who take refuge in You. Thank You, Lord, for this time And I worship today, Lord, I pray that You help each and every one of us to serve You with fear and rejoice with trembling. But Lord, help us to worship You in the beauty of Your holiness and sit at Your feet at the feet of Jesus and just have supper time with Him. Save us from ourselves, O God. Help us to just remember this. And if we need to repent of it, Lord, help us to repent of this. Oh God, give us grace to love You more and more and carry out the Gospel to a lost and dying world for Your honor and glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.